Let me pray and then we'll get into today's message. Father, uh, thank you so much for your goodness and your grace. Jesus, thank you for coming. Thank you that this is not just a time or something that we do to get to the real joy, which is Christmas morning. Lord, you are the real joy. You are the joy. We don't want to uh, make this just a thing. This is the thing that we can come and worship you that we can glorify you, Father. And so please help us, help us in this time, Lord. Help us to have ears, to listen to your word, to hear from your spirit. Give us affections for you that are not there apart from you, Lord. Work in us, we pray for your glory. In Christ's name, amen. This morning we're going to look at uh, the first of two sermons. Uh, This morning and tomorrow evening will be a two-part series, The Message and Hope of Christmas. It's that a baby was born, not just an ordinary baby. Um, This baby, as you think back and imagine Joseph and Mary there in this stable and this baby lying in this manger, uh, it's not an ordinary baby. He cries the same way as an ordinary baby. It looks the same as an ordinary baby. But here in a manger is the king of the universe, God with us, Emmanuel, has come. And and here in baby form is God and man together. And Jesus is the fulfillment of all the promises and all the longings found in the Old Testament. If you can imagine, uh, what we're going to look at this morning is uh, those longings. Uh, You imagine for the thousands of years that encompass the Old Testament, the longings for one to come and rescue, one to come and, and fulfill and fill the emptiness, the, what, was, what was missing, what was lacking. There's thousands and thousands of years of longings. Jesus is the fulfillment of those promises and the fulfillment of those longings. And so this morning we're going to look at some of those longings, longings that are revealed in the Old Testament and fulfilled in Jesus. And then tomorrow evening, we're going to look at how Jesus is the fulfillment of those longings, not just 2,000 years ago, but today. So the first one I want to look at is the longing for fellowship or union with God. If you turn to Genesis chapter 3, it's right at the beginning of your Bible there. Genesis chapter 3, starting with verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. And then the eyes of both were opened and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. 
The Lord had created Adam and Eve as perfect people into a perfect world, placing them into this perfect garden, which was Eden. No sin. All was good. In fact, God creates man in his own image. He looks and he says it was very good. And in that world, in the Garden of Eden, there was perfect fellowship between Adam and Eve, and there was perfect fellowship between God and Adam and Eve. Imagine that. Nothing between Adam and Eve, between these two humans. We, don't, we can't grasp that. But with Adam and Eve, there's perfect relationship there, perfect union and fellowship. And not just that, but between God and Adam and Eve, there is perfect unity, perfect fellowship between creator and created. But then Adam and Eve sin, and the fellowship is broken. And I don't think we can understand uh, the longing that Adam and Eve must have felt for fellowship that they had tasted before. They had had, they had experienced perfect unity and fellowship with God. God literally walking with them, fellowshipping with them, being with them, nothing separating them. Nothing coming between them. Perfect fellowship. And I don't think we can understand the longing that they would have felt when that was gone. They walked with God. They had perfect, unblemished fellowship with Him. And then their sin broke that fellowship. And now they feel a longing that they've never known before. The shame of their sin is mixed with a longing that now they can't have. Fellowship, union with God with their creator. And so now here they are in the garden and God comes walking through the garden and they hear God's voice and they hide. And now in place of this perfect fellowship, they say to the loving, awesome, holy creator, we heard you and we were afraid and so we hid. The fellowship completely broken. I don't think we can understand. I don't think we can feel or understand what that must have been like for them, having had it and then it gone. But we can understand somewhat that longing for unity, that longing for true fellowship, that longing for fellowship with God. And we want to fill that longing. We want to fill that longing for perfect fellowship. And so we try, you, you just watch mankind and they try to fill this emptiness, this longing for a perfect relationship. And they'll bounce from relationship to relationship to relationship to relationship. But there's only one. There was only one relationship and there is still only one relationship that can satisfy that longing. Adam and Eve knew that. They knew what it was. They had fellowship Unique, perfect fellowship with God, and it was gone. It was broken because of sin. So we see throughout the scriptures in the Old Testament this continued longing for union, for fellowship with God. Second, we see a longing for a sufficient sacrifice. If you just turn further in Genesis to chapter 22. Genesis chapter 22, starting with verse 1. Familiar story to us. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here am I. He said, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, 
and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. Then Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son. And he took in his hand the fire and the knife. So they went both of them together. And Isaac said to his father, Abraham, my father. And he said, here I here am I, my son. He said, behold, the fire and the wood. But where is the lamb for a burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went both of them together. When they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac, his son, and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here am I. He said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked and behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of that place. The Lord will provide as it is said to this day on the mount of the Lord. It shall be provided. Can you imagine? I mean, the answer is no, right? Just, just even trying to imagine being Abraham in this passage. I mean, it starts off in chapter 22 after these things. What are these things it's talking about? You look in the verses leading into chapter 22. God has just shown how he's going to provide the fulfillment of his promise. To make Abraham a great nation. He's giving Abraham, who's 100 years old, by his wife Sarah, who's 90 years old, a son. Through whom God will bless the nations. And so we see that Isaac is born. And after that, Isaac is born. God says, I want you to sacrifice your son. What do you do? I mean... What do you do if you're Abraham? you got this promise on one hand from God who cannot lie and says, through this child, through this son, the nations will be blessed. The, the multitude of descendants through this one child will be so many that you cannot number them. You can't count them. So he has this promise in one hand and then this command on the other hand, kill the child. What do you do? Come up with a bunch of excuses, but God, you said, you said, God, you told me that through this son, all of the nations would be blessed. So uh, you don't mean that, God. You, you surely you don't mean that you want me to do. Abraham doesn't do that. He doesn't make excuses. He doesn't barter with God. Now we could say, well, maybe it's just not written down. Maybe we just don't see his bartering with God being written. He doesn't do it. There's no time to do it. He gets up early the next morning. 
gathers his things, gets his son, and heads towards the place of sacrifice. They're going three days journey, by the way. Going up the mountain, what does the boy Isaac say to him? Dad, you see the fire and the wood. Where's the sheep? Can you imagine a more painful question being asked? I mean, Abraham's not a robot. We read it that way sometimes. We read scriptures as if these guys are just robots. They have no feelings. He's not a robot. He's a daddy who has waited 100 years for this boy. 100 years. Waiting and waiting and waiting. And then this promise of this child, Isaac, the one. And God says, kill him. And this boy who you love looks at you and says, Dad, where's the sheep? Abraham in faith replies, God will provide for himself the lamb. And so they continue on to the place. They arrive there. It's still just fire and wood and Isaac. But Abraham continues, ties his son to the altar. And we don't get the questions in this part, right? We get the questions on the way. Dad, where's the sheep? We don't get the questions when he's tying up his son. We don't get the, the tears and the anguish from his son and the tears and the anguish from Abraham who's laying his son on this altar. He continues. Takes the knife in his hand and the Lord intervenes. We can't understand that. But God understands. God understands exactly where Abraham's at at that moment. Because God will do the same thing to his son, but he won't stop his hand. And Abraham looks behind him. In the brambles, there's a ram caught there, a substitute for his son Isaac. But it's a ram. Isn't that interesting? It's a ram, not a lamb. Abraham says, the Lord will provide a lamb. And there's a ram there as a substitute for Isaac. Is that significant? I think it is somewhat. Because in verse 14, Abraham, or it says, Abraham called the name of that place the Lord will provide. As it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. He wasn't wrong. God would provide. He would provide more than a lamb, more than a temporary sacrifice. He would provide a lamb, a substitute for Isaac and for many, many more. But on that day, even in the midst of the joy of of keeping his son in the flesh there, the longing for a sufficient sacrifice was not met. And so we see throughout the Thousands of years that encompass the Old Testament, this longing, this longing for a sufficient sacrifice. Third, we see a longing for a mediator. Go to Job. Job chapter 9. If you find Psalms, 
biggest book in the Bible, right in the middle there, just the book right before. Job chapter 9. Job is, is in ashes, laying in ashes, covered from head to toe, it says, in sores, in anguish, wishing he could die in so much pain. In that state, he says this. Then Job answered and said, Truly, I know that it is so. But how can a man be in the right before God? If one wished to contend with him, one could not answer him once in a thousand times. He is wise in heart and mighty in strength. Who has hardened himself against him and succeeded? He who removes mountains, and they know it not, when he overturns them in his anger, who shakes the earth out of its place and its pillars tremble, who commands the sun and it does not rise, who seals up the stars, who alone stretched out the heavens and trampled the waves of the sea, who made the bear and Orion, the Pleiades and the chambers of the south, who does great things beyond searching out and marvelous things beyond number. Behold, he passes by me and I see him not. He moves on, but I do not perceive him. Behold, he snatches away. Who can turn him back? Who will say to him, what are you doing? God will not turn back his anger. Beneath him bowed the helpers of Rahab. How then can I answer him, choosing my words with him? Though I am in the right, I cannot answer him. I must appeal for mercy to my accuser. If I summoned him and he answered me, I would not believe that he was listening to my voice. For he crushes me with a tempest and multiplies my wounds without cause. He will not let me get my breath, but fills me with bitterness. If it is a contest of strength, behold, he is mighty. If it is a matter of justice, who can summon him? Though I am in the right, my own mouth would condemn me. Though I am blameless... He would prove me perverse. I'm blameless. I regard not myself. I loathe my life. It is all one. Therefore, I say he destroys both the blameless and the wicked. When disaster brings sudden death, he mocks at the calamity of the innocent. The earth is given into the hand of the wicked. He covers the faces of its judges. If it is not he, who then is it? My days are swifter than a runner. They flee away. They see no good. They go by like skiffs of reed, like an eagle swooping on the prey. If I say, I will forget my complaint, I will put off my sad face and be of good cheer. I become afraid of all my suffering, for I know you will not hold me innocent. I shall be condemned. Why then do I labor in vain? If I wash myself with snow and cleanse my hands with lye, yet you will plunge me into a pit and my own clothes will abhor me. For he's not a man as I am that I might answer him, that we should come to trial together. There is no arbiter between us who might lay his hand on us both. Let him take his rod away from me and let not dread of him terrify me. Then I would speak without fear of him, for I am not so in myself. If Job declaring this longing for what? For mediator. He's right. We're not like God. He is mighty in all of his ways. And Job knew that even if it was possible for Job to be right and for God to be wrong, what could he say? 
Job and all mankind long for someone to intercede for them. Someone to stand as mediator between God and man. That's his longing there. What do I say? What do I say if I come before God? This God who created and brings about all things, who is mighty in strength. What do I say? What could I say? Even if I were in the right, I would be wrong and proven wrong. So he longs, he longs for this one. There's no arbiter, he says, between us. There's no one to stand between us to lay his hand on us both. No mediator, no one to intercede for mankind. Without that longing fulfilled, we all, like Adam and Eve, will hide from his presence. We all, like Job says here, will be in dread of him, terrified of him. A longing we see throughout these thousands of years of waiting for someone to come and mediate between God and man. Fourth, we see a longing for deliverance. We just go a little further to Psalm chapter 6. Psalm 6, David says this, O Lord, Rebuke me not in your anger, nor discipline me in your wrath. Be gracious to me, O Lord, for I am languishing. Heal me, O Lord, for my bones are troubled. My soul also is greatly troubled. But you, O Lord, how long? Turn, O Lord, deliver my life. Save me for the sake of your steadfast love. For in death there is no remembrance of you. In Sheol, who will give you praise? I am weary with my moaning. Every night I flood my bed with tears. I drench my couch with my weeping. My eye wastes away because of grief. It grows weak because of all my foes. Depart from me, all you workers of evil. For the Lord has heard the sound of my weeping. The Lord has heard my plea. The Lord accepts my prayer. All my enemies shall be ashamed and greatly troubled. They shall turn back and be put to shame in a moment. David is king and he speaks on behalf of the people. In this case, not just the people of Israel, but us as well. All mankind longing for the same thing, one to deliver. Deliver my life, he says. Save me. Save me for the sake of your steadfast love. We long to be delivered. We need to be delivered from our enemies. But do we realize that our greatest threat, our greatest enemy is sin? That the God of this world, Satan, has blinded our eyes so that we cannot see the light of the glory of the gospel of God in the face of Jesus Christ. In Exodus 2, verses 23 through 25, people of Israel have been in captivity for 400 years, enslaved by their enemy. And the Lord raises up Moses, who's a type, a picture, of the one that they truly longed for. It says in Exodus 2, verses 23 through 25, During those many days the king of Egypt died and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God and God heard their groaning. And God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel and God knew. You have the people longing, just as David proclaims, longing to be delivered, longing, crying out, groaning to God, save us, deliver us from our enemies. That longing has not been silenced at all. 
We are born with that longing. We need to be delivered. We need to be saved. And here it says God heard their groans, their cries to be delivered. And so Moses leads the people out of bondage. But what happens to Moses? What happens to the people? They don't make it. Their kids make it, but they don't make it. They sin. They disobey God. They turn their back on God. They worship idols instead of God who who rescued them and brought them out. And so they die in the desert. And Moses sees the promised land. He looks out and he sees it. And God says, you don't get to go in. But Moses is just a type. He's just a picture. The longing is still there. Longing as David cried for deliverance. That one day, a deliverer, a true deliverer would come and lead his people all the way home. Last, the longing for rest. We see throughout the Old Testament this longing for true rest. If you go back to Genesis chapter 6, it wasn't long after the Garden of Eden that corruption is increasing, increasing, increasing on the earth. Wickedness prevails. And it says in Genesis chapter 6, starting with verse 5, The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Grace. In Genesis 5, Noah is born. His father names him Noah, saying, Out of the ground that the Lord has cursed, this one shall bring us relief from our work and from the painful toil of our hands. Noah's name sounds like the Hebrew word for rest. All these people longing for rest, even in the midst of corruption, longing for true rest. You see, in Genesis 2, we see that God rested from his work after creating the earth and everything in it in six days. God rested on the seventh day. But then Genesis three comes and sin enters the world and true rest is gone because righteousness on earth is gone. Sin enters and righteousness departs. So mankind created in a garden of righteousness now is living in a cursed world and longing for rest. Longing for rest. Not just rest from work. True rest. Noah's born. And there's hope. This is finally going to be the one that brings rest. This longing for rest is going to be fulfilled. See, this longing had been there since the garden. In the garden, when the curse is given and God says there's going to be one who's going to come and he's going to crush the head of the serpent. From that moment forward, there's an anticipation from the garden. There's anticipation. One is going to come and save us. One is going to come and deliver us. One is going to come and bring us rest. And so Noah's born and that hope is just felt anticipation. Maybe this is the one. Maybe rest will come through Noah. 
And God tells Noah that he's going to flood the earth and save only Noah, his family, some animals. And that's what he does. Noah builds the ark. God floods the earth. Noah and his family are saved and some animals are saved. But does it bring rest? Does it bring true rest? Turn, turn the page in your Bible to Genesis chapter 8. The flood has, has subsided. The waters are gone. The, the ark has come to rest. The people have departed from the ark. The, the animals have, have departed from the ark. And we come to chapter 8 verse 20 and it says, Then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never curse I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I have done. Is there rest after the flood, after the judgment? No. Righteousness is a means to the rest that we long for. Righteousness was always a means to that rest. Man's heart was intent on evil before the flood, the Lord says, and man's heart was intent on evil after the flood. The most righteous man was not righteous enough to bring about peace and rest on earth. Noah wasn't enough. A perfect righteousness would need to come to bring the rest that we long for. So even after the flood, mankind waits and longs for true rest. Only one name, Scripture tells us, is sufficient to bring rest. It's not Noah, it's Jesus, Emmanuel, God with us. We long for so many things. We long for so many things. We try to fulfill those longings with so many different things. We long for union and fellowship with God. We long for a sufficient sacrifice, one that will suffice for our sins. We long for a mediator, someone who can plead our case before God. We long for deliverance, someone to rescue us from our enemy, our sin. We long for rest. But those longings were not met in any of the passages that we looked at. Or any of the people that we looked at in the Old Testament. They just waited And waited and waited for thousands of years. They waited for the one to come to fulfill. And then one day in Bethlehem, this baby is born. And all of those longings are met in that one place. Our longings will only be met by the one who came as a perfect man, as God and Man. In fact, Matthew 1, verses 20 through 23, says, An angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Joseph, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord has spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. There's no way for us to feel and and fully understand what it would be like for those thousands and thousands of years where those longings remain. Here we are looking back on the fulfillment of all of those things. All the promises, all of the longings met in Jesus. But how are we responding to that? 
How do we respond to the one who's come to fill those longings? Do we just come together and we worship once a week and, and here we are two days before Christmas and this is nice? It's kind of, it's, Christmas church services are kind of nice, feely stuff. I mean, there's tree and lights and I mean, all the songs were just like upbeat songs and Christmassy songs and, and it just, just wonderful, nice feeling. Is that it? It's just one of the things we do during Christmas, but we can't wait for Christmas Day because then the presents, the family, all those things we really love, we get to be with them and get from them and give to them. And that is, I can't wait. That's what you're just thinking right now. I just can't wait till Tuesday. But are we missing the main thing for a sub thing? Are we, are we clinging to joys that will never fill us and missing the joy that came to fill all of our longings? Jesus. 2 Corinthians 1.20 says, For all the promises of God find their yes in Him, in Jesus. That is why it is through Him that we utter our amen to God for His glory. All of the promises of God find their yes in Him. And all of the longings of mankind are only filled in Him. We long for Jesus. He alone will satisfy us. Tomorrow, as I said, we're going to look at how is Jesus the fulfillment of those longings. As as the people waited and anticipated, they're in that manger. How is this baby, Jesus, the fulfillment of those things? But in your hearts as we wait, is that longing still there? Have you found the joy? Have you found the deliverer? Have you found the substitute? Have you found the one who came? Do you know him? Do you treasure him? Do you love him? We sang just uh, earlier in the service, uh, joy, unspeakable joy. Is that true? Is that true? Or will you find more joy in unwrapping paper that you will throw away than you find in Jesus this morning? Jesus came to fulfill your longings. How are we responding to him? Let me pray. Father, thank you for your grace. Thank you for mercy. Thank you, Jesus, for coming. Thank you for coming. We do not understand, Lord. We cannot comprehend what it would have been like for Adam and Eve and have that relationship, that perfect fellowship with you broken. We long for that. We have it partially now, but we wait for it to be fulfilled where we are face to face with you. All because of Jesus. We don't know what it would have been like for for Abraham to be on the mountain weeping as he's about to slaughter his son. But you do, God. That was just a picture of what you would display. The greatest love this world has ever experienced. Lord, help us, help us. By your spirit, help us 
to understand that these longings that we have inside of us, that we, we so easily try to fill with idolatry, so often want to satisfy with things that you created. Or would you help us to see and understand and believe that Jesus has come and that he alone is able to satisfy and quench the thirsts that we have? Jesus, would you truly be the joy in our hearts today, tomorrow, Tuesday, and forever? We need you, we long for you, and we praise you knowing that you came. Amen.